I just wanted to say a quick thank you to everyone for your support. Uh, just one week ago, I had to say goodbye to my good friend, my best friend, Radar. Uh, he was about 13 years old, a terrific red healer dog. Uh, 12 of those years he spent with me. And I wanted to let everybody know that uh, although I miss the hell out of him, I am recovering really quickly. And I wanted to thank everybody for all of the support, all the emails and the direct messages, and uh, Garrett and Dell for being there, for uh, both the Johns, to Molly, to uh, all the people who have offered uh, so much support. It's, it, it really has buoyed me up. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I'll, I'll let you say a little bit more to that, but let me thank our sponsors really quickly. Since 1882, Schubert Club has been creating inspiring musical experiences in the Twin Cities. More on Schubert Club here shortly. Uh, also, send a big thanks to Salastina. Salastina is classical music's wingman. By day, they're world-class performers and studio musicians who've played on your favorite films, and they're also musicians who are challenging what classical music is, was, and can be. More on them at salastina.org, and more on them here in a bit. Um, but Scott, I just you know want to say how great it is to have you back. There there have been a few guest hosts, guest co-hosts on uh, the, the Triloquy podcast, mm -hmm. and every time that we do it, I just remember how special it is to have not only your voice, but your perspective and your Thank energy you. here on the show. So it's uh, great to great to have you back. How have you been spending this this past week as you've been healing and, and processing everything? I was very fortunate to have a friend in town when it actually happened. So uh, that made it tolerable, you know. Mm -hmm. But he took a very quick turn on Monday. And once the decision was made that that was going to be the last day, then I was able to very quickly slide into care mode. You know, it was, you yeah. know, all of a sudden that's the new job and all of the anxiety around the decision was gone, you know? So, uh, and then to have John and you and Dell over on Wednesday for a toast, that was, um, uh, I mean, it's the shits. I'm not going to lie. It's the shits. Everything sucks right now. Yeah. But I'm, 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 I'm at least able to keep it together for the most part. But every once in a while, I have those moments where I'll remember something or I'll find something I wasn't expecting. And sure. then, you know, I trip. The karma is very heavy these yeah. days. You know, me and Dell lost Grover. Uh, you, we, I'll say, just lost Radar. And I was in the hospital today. I have never in my life been to the hospital. I've always been averse, but I passed out and uh, had uh, a sort scared. of seizure on, on a plane on the way back. I, you know, I was in New York last week. I had to extend my stay in New York because on Sunday, my stomach was just bothering me so bad. I couldn't even move, much less get on a plane. I'm, I'm, we're not talking about Rihanna today because I didn't even see the, the concert at the Super Bowl yesterday. That's mm -hmm. how serious things were. So, you know, Fast forward to Monday, me and Dell, you know, make our way to the airport. I'm just doing my best to, you know, hold it together, just feeling very weak, hadn't eaten in two and a half days because oh, my no. stomach was hurting me so bad. So anyway, uh, started stuff started happening on the plane. Paramedics came once we landed. I went to the hospital. I think I'm doing okay now. My numbers seem okay, but I just have to change my diet. I'll maybe in a future opus we'll uh talk about the the vegan diet that I am transitioning to out of the necessity of my health, but I'm doing okay, still healing. The insides feel 
pretty sore still. So I, I think we have a, a sort of yin and yang thing going on, the emotional <laughs> healing mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. soreness. Mine is very physical. Please excuse me if you hear coughs and that sort of thing today. But I, I want to make sure that y'all get this show every week. So here we are <laughs> doing what we got to do. I wonder what's been, you know, since this is a music show, I wonder what's been the music that's been accompanying you through through all of these things this right. week. Like I said, uh, I have a pretty good handle on the emotions for the most part. For example, I can look at pictures of Radar and watch videos and laugh along and remember the day and be just fine. And I needed to be able to listen to something that wasn't triggering, mm-hmm. that wasn't, um, that was more uh, accompanying. It wasn't too distracting, I guess, from uh, the remembering that I was doing at the time. Sure. So uh, the one that I'll bring in for the second movement features Pharaoh Sanders and the electronic artist uh, Floating Points along with the London Symphony Orchestra. But listening through that a few times, the, lo- the algorithm led me to a band called Girls in Airports. Mm-hmm. And, Speaking of airports. Right. And the, uh, the track that really grabbed me was um, The Curtain of Life. And it's just sort of easy, nondescript jazz. Very warm, mellow, not, not melancholy, just mellow. composer let me say that first but what this makes me think about is you know when we're trying to improvise or even create something just for social media or something we can think of something being too simple or you know acting like we need to just layer on and and layer on something to prove to people that we're Mm -hmm. musicians worth worth a damn or whatever (laughs) when at when at the end of the day it's the very simple just very calm, not too complicated aesthetics that are also needed, especially, you know, when, you know, you're, you're dealing with some of the things that you're, you're talking about. And shout out to that saxophone player because yeah. the, just breathing, like breathing out like that so softly and getting sound out of the horn is not easy. That That's mad respect there. Yeah. There, there's a bit of music that I've been spending some time with as well, you know, getting me through my travels and things. Uh, the week before last, I visited uh, Los Angeles to go see Adrian Dunn and the mm. Rise Orchestra, the Adrian Dunn Singers, perform Emancipation Act Two. And one of the tracks that's been on my mind is called Jericho. So in the Bible, there's this story about of the city of Jericho and the people marching around, marching around until the walls fall down so mm-hmm. that they can take the city and all of that, that sort of thing. Well, Adrian really contextualized uh, all all of the, the the stories and things that he brings to the stage. He contextualizes them in a really incredible contemporary way. But for this one in particular, the way he contextualized it made me think about how 
forces to tear your walls down, forces to destroy you are not going to stop. It's not like we just get to say, okay, they finally gave up. So we have to constantly push back, especially when I'm thinking about my health. I'm not going to get any healthier just ignoring my body and ignoring symptoms. I have to push back and I have to Mm. be victorious over those proverbial walls trying to come down. All of that just to say that uh, Adrian Dunn's interpretation of that story as musically uh, performed by the Rise Orchestra and the Adrian Dunn singles has been something I've been really spending some time with and appreciating. Here's a little bit of that for you. beautiful things to me about that performance. I'm getting choked up. I'm just so grateful to Adrian Dunn just for everything that he's doing out there in the world of orchestral music. The way that the voices go down and kind of do that glissando down Mm -hmm. into defeat, Mm -hmm. you know, that feeling is real. That feeling of, wow, I am at the bottom. I can't be feeling any worse right now. Mm. That's a real feeling. But what's also a real feeling, maybe even more gratifying after having experienced something like that, is the come up and the music that can help remind us who we are and, and the things that energize us and, and get us in a, in a better spirit. I wonder if there's some music for you that did that for well, you this week. Yeah, I'll have to go. I'll have to this means we're going to repeat something from a past opus. No worries. Yeah. You used to ask me uh, like what I would listen in, listen to, to get myself pumped up or to turn my mood around and yeah. get going. Right. And I brought in Lenny Kravitz. Are you going to go my way? And whenever I was playing that radar was walking in front of me mm. or whenever I played it, he was in the back seat with his head out the window as we were cruising along. Yeah. Radar was a part of that pump up. So I I would be listening. Yeah, I'm I'm going to spend some time with this tonight. effective ostinato we have there you know that repeated figure that Mm. we hear over and over again but Mm -hmm. you don't get tired of it you keep beating your head to it and right and oh great music and i always went radar's way he whenever we went on a walk he he drove he got to 
He got to t- say where we went. Yeah, and 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 just so that it said, I would also go Lenny Kravitz's way anytime. But anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, well, you know, for me, as, as we're closing up this this intro here, the the music that kind of really got me feeling better. So you know, I, I'm so grateful to uh, get to uh, stay with Caesar when I'm in New York. Shout out to Caesar who you know helped me get well enough at least to get on the plane for me to uh, get back. So we always have our education hours we either watch documentaries on his tv screen and that that sort of thing after after smoking a little green of course mm-hmm. um and then we also bring in some music so uh caesar always brings in some of his favorite things things that he thinks i'll appreciate and a recording that he put on my radar that i am so grateful for is this performance from uh, 1966 uh ella fitzgerald featured in a performance of how high the moon but oh i but love that at the, the second half of it She's just doing this whole scat thing that is incredibly impressive. Here's a little bit of that. That's all you get. That's all you get. Well, that was high, 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 It's the moon and I hope I'm still in tune. High, 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 They asked me how I knew my true love was I mean, we talk about in the world of opera, soprano coloraturas, you know, the ability to just really flip your voice and use it as an instrument that that mm-hmm. is just so flexible. I mean, look, no no shade, but Maria Callas who, you know, <laughs> and Anna Trepko who. Get one of your faves to do anything like that. And not to mention that this is not music that's just written down. See here, see now I'm getting in my bag. I must be feeling better. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about music that's written down. We're talking about experiences and and interpretations that are just coming from live creativity. Who else? Who else? I'm just so grateful to be able to, you know, be alive to know names like Ella Fitzgerald and hear those sorts of recordings. Anyway, all of this to say, life comes at you. Fucking fast. Mm-hmm. I think that is just, that goes without saying. Life comes at you fast, whether it's loss of a pet, medical emergencies, all of these things. Music can be medicine. Music is medicine. It helps us deal. It helps us change our mood. It's something that's vital. Inspiring thought toward the most equitable, the most decolonized approach to that music is what we're doing here. See, we're doctors, Scott. We're helping the people. Dr. B. (laughs) Dr. B and Dr. G. All right, let's jump in. I 
Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy. Thank you so much for joining us this week. For returning listeners, we couldn't do this without you. Thank you for continuing to support this show. To new listeners, if this is your first time checking out Triloquy, Triloquy is a podcast that takes the phrase classical music and includes everything that we think should belong to that phrase within those spaces, both both physical through dialogue and everything in between. For more information on the Triloquy podcast, to contribute and to check out past opuses, feel free to go over to our website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y.org. In addition to your very generous support, support for Triloquy comes from Schubert Club. Coming up on February 23rd, Schubert Club is presenting their next installment of free courtroom concerts featuring Clara Ozofsky, mezzo-soprano, Casey Raff, piano, and Steve Sterick, tenor uh, with David Sherwin piano. A special shout out to Steve Sterick, you know, one of my former colleagues, one of your current Mm -hmm. (laughs) colleagues. It's great to hear people on the radio and get their perspective on music in that way, but hearing their actual artistry realized is also really cool. Great violist. Yeah, uh, he plays viola as well. Okay, wow, great. So uh, if you're interested in uh, checking out this free courtroom concert, you can find more information on that at schubert.org. Again, that's happening on Thursday, February 23rd. Also, huge shout out to our partners at Salestina presenting their resident and artist showcase. This is featuring Meredith and Yoshi on March 24th and 25th. You can check this out in person if you're over on the West Coast on March 21st and in person and online on March 25th. Both of those happening at 8 p.m. Pacific time. So please go and support if you're able. Richard Desnord, Dr. Richard Desnord is the third movement guest this week. More on him in a bit. We're sticking with the black music for our second movement this week. Some really exciting things coming. Del, uh, Del, see, Del was in your seat for one week and now I'm messing up. Okay. Scott and I are going to talk a little bit about a concept that we pulled from the show Last of Us that's uh, been hitting HBO lately. We'll get into that in the triloquy, but for now, it is movement one. So, Scott, we we typically bring in articles and and news sorts of things, but social media is also a very important factor Mm -hmm. when it comes to the dialogue surrounding so-called classical music. So I'm going to get us started this week with a sharp that takes us over to Twitter. I want to shout out Linton Stevens. Linton Stevens is a bassoonist, um, is a broadcaster, an activist, an illustrator, and uh, all uh, just multi-talented individual in the arts based over in England. And he put together a thread that I think is really useful that I'll link in the description for folks to check out. The first in this tweet is, I get asked a lot about whether we should still play music with outdated stereotypes or problematic language. After a few conversations with other EDI specialists, I've pulled together a little guide of things to consider when programming such music. Before I go into some of the specific points that were made here, I wonder what is your general approach to the conversation? For me, if there's a question, maybe there's something else. If if there's room for error, if there's room for someone to be offended, if there's room for it to be racist or sexist, as far as the music that we perform and platform, maybe we should go another route. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with nuance versus just uh, drawing the line in the sand, as, as I tend to these days? Wow. <laughs> uh, how do I do with, deal with the nuance? Or do you deal with the nuance? Because <laughs> I don't. I, I'm to the point where I'm like, no, this isn't nuance. If it's just racist, it's racist. Yeah, I get you. But you see, the thing is, is that I either I don't have all the facts that you do on some topics or maybe just different facts. Mm. 
um, not, and not alternative facts. Right. Don't, don't go down that road <laughs> yeah. on me. But how do I, um, I, I don't know if I have a, a way of describing walking that tightrope mm-hmm. because in my job, we know that there are people out there that like all kinds of different music. And so we're trying to cater to a lot of different tastes. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that if you try to be all things to everybody, you're nothing to nobody. Listen, And so walking that line is, um, <laughs> I don't know. We just get out there, you know, just I just go I, for it. Right. <laughs> sure. Sure. Well, let me highlight some of the things uh, that are, that are in this tweet thread. The first that I wanted to speak to, it says, consider your mission and values as an organization or as an individual. Does this piece and what it portrays align with said values? Obviously this is a complex subject. So review on a case by case basis, either way, consider the message you're sending. Mm-hmm. So when I read this part of the tweet thread, I thought about Handel. That's the first composer that came to mind for me. When we talk about consider the mission and values of your own individual self or your organization, for me, this is an example. Handel is an example of where I draw that line and say no. As someone who has the responsibility of being known as an outspoken anti-racist in the arts, you know, classical agitator, all of the things that they have called me, it is not a part of my mission and it does not align with my values to platform music like that for the sake of it. There have been times when Handel has made it on Triloquy, but for very specific points. But for me as an individual and as a brand, everyone talks about themselves as a brand, that doesn't really align with myself. I know that you have in the past talked about how it would reinforce more positive missions and values of organizations to stop playing handle and to replace it with different things. That's Mm -hmm. how you show people that you really mean it, what your values really are. Right. And I guess part of the answer that I just gave you was, you know, you need to be part of the transition. You Mm -hmm. need to be part of the change that's happening. Um, My response actually fits with one that's further down. So it says, consider the mission and the values. Does Trillworks have a mission statement? Yes. Does Trill, okay. So that is something that just like you would hold up the mission and values of some organization that you want to say this is counter right to what you're doing you have that as well exactly okay so you can point to people and say i have my mission statement here that it doesn't line up right right, right. okay so has that kept you from accepting certain gigs work whatever definitely most definitely talk about that what was the these days especially when it comes to live performance Mm -hmm. there are certain gigs that i would continue to take um and 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 have taken i you know i haven't completely said goodbye to playing the bassoon but for me it doesn't align with my values to play a concert that is typical to what the industry is still doing if there's a concert with a you know insert european overture insert european uh, concerto insert Rachmaninoff symphony or Beethoven symphony. I can't sit on that stage, certainly not in a, sh- uh, a tuxedo, you know, looking like uh, a servant from Downton Abbey, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and and be expected to have be respected or or heard even when I speak about anti-racism and decolonizing classical music. So as much as 
I would enjoy, you know, there there are Beethoven symphonies that I do love, you know, but if a program is not representative of my morals and my values, that's where I have to draw the line. That That's one big example for me. Okay, so who do you think Linton is speaking to of the people who are members of a large ensemble or opera company or media group? So- well, I mean, as as many of us say, if the if the bullet hits you, it was it was meant for you, of course. You know, <laughs> if that shoe fits, <laughs> right? Lace it up and ex- walk around. Ex- exactly. So, I, and and that's why I appreciate his perspective because not only is he coming to this as a musician, but also a broadcaster and, right, and someone right. who's just a general leader in this in this conversation. What was the next one that stuck out to you? Yeah, another one that uh, I wanted to bring in. It says, "Ask yourself why you want to perform this." With so much music, is it justifiable to give the reason that it's just excellent music, quote unquote? Mm-hmm. This one really resonates with me because I've had to come to terms with artists that I love, you know, being not only just so-called canceled, because not to diminish, you know, some of the things that have been said about some of these artists, but, you know, holding myself accountable again to my morals and my values and understanding the why behind I play something. So I'm just going to go there. Kanye West. Kanye is an artist whose music I venerate, I respect, I love. So much of his music has changed my life. I've been staying away from it here on Triloquy and in my other broadcast things because the why is different now. If I perform his music, if I platform his music just as a reason to show excellent music, I'm not just doing that. I'm making a statement. I'm standing against sure. a, a broader dialogue. And I think, you know, that that is my being vulnerable, but showing an example of how it's not just the music. So if we want to go into so-called classical, when we play Wagner, when we play, you know, all of the Orff, all of these other yeah. composers, you know, we have to understand that there is a deeper why. So it's not just about this being great music. It's about us upholding something or even speaking against a dialogue that's happening. Right. There's um, there's certain language that I've pushed back on in, in fundraising instances that hint at that sort of thing. You know, the uh, the the heritage language sure. or or legacy language, you know, uh, trying to get away from that. I see your point there. The last one I'll point out here, um, and we'll move on. It says here: think about exactly how you want to inform anyone who may listen about the cultural and historical context of such views or opinions. I want to bring. Debussy back up because mm-hmm. <laughs> I know that was one of our moments. Yeah, and and I, I, at this point, I wish that we had gotten that on tape. But we, but we were sitting here for a long time. I guess Chuck got it on tape, so mm-hmm. one day it'll be in a documentary or something. Um, but when we hear the name Claude Debussy, we're talking about a name that is solidly affixed to just the core of what people think about when it comes to classical music. I'm not necessarily saying that because of his womanizing and and his you know other horrific things that that he did while he was alive that we should never play his music again necessarily i'm not saying that i guess where i am now is i think it's fair to have the expectation on um 
performers, um, music programmers, even on radio hosts to be prepared to engage that dialogue. Mm -hmm. Because there are certain places, Scott, where you would draw the line. Let's be hyperbolic for a second. If there was some uh, uh, piece of music, I, I think it's Kachaturian or something, you know, if on your playlist was the ninja dance, except for not ninja, <laughs> I'm sure you would take the authority to do something else mm -hmm. other than talk about that and air that. Without so, question. Right. So, so how far over do we move the goalposts? We have right, the obvious right, places right. where we would do that. If we're not going to do that sort of thing with folks like Debussy, names that are just so well-known and, and venerated, I think it's only fair to have the expectation that people be prepared to at least engage the dialogue. See, this is the point that I wanted to make when we first started the conversation on this accidental, is I'm having that conversation with colleagues and with listeners um, about if you go back, the, the, frequently what people want to say is if you go back far enough in history, in any composer's timeline, you're going to find something unsavory. Mm -hmm. And so to do that would be casting everything out. And I said, okay, so be ready for people to say, then cast it all out. Period. And have you, and you're not done there. You, if you really want to have the conversation, then you need to have an answer to come back with. You can't just go, oh, well, that was the only retort that I thought of. Mm -hmm. And so now I have to slink away. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, so when somebody says uh, there were people just like Hendel all around him that were doing the exact same thing, so we're really splitting hairs. Okay, well then, when they say don't play the Messiah, be ready to tell them why you're doing it. Right, right, exactly. And be ready to stand behind all of that. Or if you can't stand behind it, that must mean it's time for program changes or, or differences in approaches and, and that sort of thing. And we talk about, uh, I was talking about uh, walking a tightrope or threading a needle or whatever it is. Uh, and when we're talking about me being on air and giving context, like he says in that one entry, entry there, mm -hmm. if I get challenged on it, all I have to do is say, look, I just said, this is the conversation. Yeah. This is the news report. This is what, like um, when the Nutcracker uh, was being revamped to be more sensitive and in particular right. with the, the, uh, the Chinese, the Chinese dance. I just got on the, on the air and said, that, Hey, this is what companies are doing. And they want to get mad at me for saying it. I'm like, no, no, no. And the thing is, why this does that is, make you mad? Right. Why, so why are you mad? I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> you stepped right in the trap, my friend, Right. <laughs> because now you have to tell me why you're upset over me saying, I heard a story about this. <laughs> I guess they don't even want to hear. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't well, know. shout out to Linton Stevens. Um, really great way to, I think, engage social media in a way that we don't typically, you know, at least mm -hmm. <laughs> not on Twitter. You can really uh, catch new audiences and, um, and you know, meet people where they are with a presentation of information and conversation in this way. So really appreciate that. I was thinking about what piece of music I wanted to transition out of this accidental with. So Linton Stevens is a bassoonist and this is Black History Month. So I'm like, okay, what are, what are some of the most important bassoon moments in Black history? I can talk about the beautiful bassoon solos in the middle movement of Africa by William Grant Still. You know, uh, Florence Price really gave it up to the bassoon she she when, she, when she started, I believe, the first symphony, whichever one is in D minor, with a bassoon solo. That's how it starts. But, you know, I, I have to give it up to Smokey Robinson. He really did give the bassoon an incredible moment in his 1967 Tears of a Clown. So we're going to listen to a little bit of that to transition. Don't let my glad 
Some recordings have that bassoon more pronounced than others, mm -hmm. but you better know, every time that I've had the opportunity to play that like on a Pops concert with an orchestra or yeah. something, we're playing loud, okay? I, I was about to ask you, <laughs> when was the last time you laid that down? Yeah, it's, it's been many years. I, right. I wish I could remember the name of the bassoonist who's in that original recording, but he was the principal bassoonist of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra at the time. Okay. So if anybody wants to put together the math when this song came out and who was principal bassoon at that time, <laughs> that's the person. So, mm. so shout out to them. All right, well, we have our uh, second accidental this week. What what you want to do with this one, Scott? I am. And, and I, I think, am. I think this headline alone deserves a little I, bit of this. I am uh, truly flummoxed <laughs> by this one. Truly flummoxed, and in doing a little bit of googling, I found out that this is actually a revamp of a story that came out in November of last year. Oh, so we so like it. new details and different quotes have been used. But dig this headline, kids. Music. I'm looking at uh, thecollegefix.com. Music scholar calls black communist dad racist for liking white composers. I'm uncertain as what direction to even begin to duck from. We're, we're just going to give it the buzzer this week Thanks. because I'm, I'm not even sure. I'll, I'll, I'll get us started Thanks here. to his white mom yeah, for teaching him true tenets of anti-racism and anti-sexism. Uh, um, and this is a man whose name has been out there recently. A scholar and guest lecturer at Oberlin College reiterated his views that his black father was a racist for liking classical music. Professor Philip Yule is a music theory professor at Hunter College and City University of New York. Um, Garrett, help. What what so what do you get from the headline first? Yeah. The the headline is very um clickbaity and really attempt because right? especially with that lowercase b on black, mm. I knew what sort of website I was coming to. Oh, you know? Okay. <laughs> See, so I, I noticed those but capital sorts of, C communists. Listen. Uh, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so what what this article is complaining about is the fact that Philip Yule is helping students understand whiteness, not only as it um, applies to just general life, but music and music tastes and what we venerate. And I think this is a good conversation for us to have. We'll get deeper into the article here in a sec in a second, but there is a big difference between white and whiteness, being white and perpetuating whiteness. This is how I this is how I make that delineation, at least in my mind. When it comes to being black or being white, let's just stick with that binary for, for now. There is a cultural reality that's rooted in both of those that white people and black people today cannot change and, and cannot alter. It's, it's, it's just history. To be white historically is to not be black. And to be black historically has been to be at the bottom 
of the totem pole. That's how we see the the continued reverberations of the of the various sorts of racial dynamics that we see in the United States today mm. when it comes to people who are neither black nor white and how they stack on this proverbial totem pole that this idea of of uh, model race and 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 that sort of thing and that that's a separate conversation but the fact of the matter is at its core whiteness has been viewed as purity superiority what is to be aspired to and blackness or to be black is the opposite of that so i, I want to make that statement first what philip yule is getting into in this well, what what the article is speaking about, what Philip Ewell was getting into, was the idea that this idea of whiteness platforming the superiority of Eurocentric, you know, dare I say, European Protestant thought as higher or better plays a direct role into many people's, at least his dad, his black dad's affinity for classical music. His dad was attempting to be as white as he could to to perpet to to lean into whiteness as much as he could and loving and venerating Western classical music from Philip Yule's perspective as his son anyway was that okay but help me out with just this one quote here that he brings up he uh, he says that his father wore tweed coats and drove a Mercedes that he couldn't afford and he was doing the things that whiteness teaches us and makes us more sophisticated and more civil. Mm-hmm. I know I know loads of people who have a car note they can't afford. Listen. I know loads of people who are house poor. Right. But to they they are not all white folks. Right. And some of them are, and that that's okay, the point. So, the, be, be, that's why I say being white and whiteness are different things because whiteness oppresses white people as well. You know, these people who can't, as you're saying, afford their car, no, and, and afford their house and, and all of these sorts of things. We live in a different society these days, slightly different when it comes to certain respectabilities around dress. So he's talking about wore tweed coats. There was once upon a time where, Scott, even you, could not go to your job as a radio host. No one sees you, you know, but you could not show up in a hoodie and sweatpants. You know, there there were certain expectations that were around even being in that building. That may not be the case now. Is that, you know, mm-hmm, I'm not saying mm-hmm. that, but I'm saying once upon a time, sure, we, we, have, following. we have in uh, 2023 states that are still enacting the Crown Act, which allow black folks to wear their hair naturally mm-hmm. or the way they want to wear it. You know, those sorts of things are the results of how whiteness has gone into the way that we uh, dress and and the way that we think is correct or respectable, or as it says here, civil. And Philip, you will recognize that in his own father. Okay. Um, I'm going to be honest. This is, this is going to take some second thoughts for me. Obviously I didn't get the, this, a lot of this on the first read through, but he stated that, whiteness has taught about what great music should be this mm-hmm. this was the this was another good point my dad bought that hook line and sinker it was extremely committed to the, what whiteness teaches us is quote excellence right as part of a white supremacist patriarchal structure he was being taught to love Rachmaninoff and to go to the opera and watch Verdi okay but and and I, but go on and somehow think that it would make him a better person. So not just that this is the greatest music, but this is the music that you need to respect and understand to be, you know, more of a person, to be a respectable member of society. So say the black person or Hispanic or Latino person that discovers Wagner on their own. Sure. And they like it. 
are they still pr- participating in upholding this whiteness? Only if they uphold that music that they discover as higher or more elevated than what I, they already know and okay, what they already right. love. I just think that we're we're really getting into shades of gray there at that at at that point. There's, sure. And and I think that's why the dialogue is important because for me it's it's not all that nuanced. Here I, I mean just just think about the music that we play here on Triloquy generally. There's plenty of orchestral music that makes it onto this podcast. But this is a podcast that does not venerate that music as greater or or better or or more right. or more uh not complicated uh what 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 word am I looking for? Complex. Complex, you know. We we don't do that because that would be falling into this idea of whiteness. That's really the only point that Philip Yule is making here. I think people get bent out of shape about these sorts of dialogues because there's not really an understanding of what whiteness is. This is not a hatred of white people or or uh, or, or anything like that. It's just, again, the historical narrative and historical fact that things associated with white people were considered better, and that includes classical music. People forget that. The fact that we call ourselves Black and say that with pride is not something that always was. You know, we we can have the conversation about going from Negro to uh, colored to Afro-American to, mm-hmm. you know, all of those sorts of things. But all of those were different ways of not saying black. Mm-hmm. So we have finally gotten to the point to where we aren't viewing that word in that way. I think we have to do the same with the word white. We have to understand what it was historically meant to represent and how we can separate individuals who fall under that category from the sort of violent oppression that historically came with it. But uh, also, uh, Dr. Yule has been, this isn't his first uh, right. <laughs> uh, foray into this sort of thing. Something about Shankirian studies, am I saying that right? I, I believe so. Um, so yeah, he's he's out there. This isn't some uh, f- uh, fringe voice. He's, right. he's in the conversation. So the next step of the conversation is how we divest, how we critique, but ultimately divest from whiteness as it ap- applies in our everyday lives, artistic and otherwise. For me personally, I can say I don't wear suits and ties. That's just not something that I do anymore because there is this idea that showing up somewhere in a suit and tie is respectable and looks nice and all of that sort of thing, right? You you would, you would agree with me so far. True. Where does that come from? That does not come from me and my culture, that doesn't come from indigenous cultures, that comes from a colonized way of thinking. So that does not mean that the suit and tie is in itself evil. But what that means is that I, Garrett McQueen, a- am not adhering to that when it when it comes to the way that I dress. You, you see what I'm wearing now, somebody in, in New York checked me, they said I look like a whole Lion King. <laughs> 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 a whole Lion King. A whole Lion King. But you know, and, and that's fine. You know, I I, I, ce- <laughs> I celebrate that. Um and, and that's that's just one way that it manifests for me. So when we talk about the arts again, the way that we work to actively decenter the Western European canon, as we use the phrase classical music, for me, is a push against whiteness and really what Philip Yule is speaking to here, at least from my perspective. Yeah, I think this this whole article, though, I'm I'm going to have to go through it again to really, this is new. Yeah. This is a new way of thinking for me. Yeah. Well, each and every one of you can 
go back through it again. I'll have it uh, linked in the description. Before we move on, there's just one thing that I needed to point out at the very beginning. It says here, Professor Philip Yule is a music theory professor at Hunter College of the City University of New York and previously claimed his dad exhibited racism by liking Bach, though it is unclear which one he meant. Okay. (laughs) So we have the London Bach. So- so you mean to tell me that forget. this wor- this world class, highly acclaimed music theorist is being just you know toppled over by I'm not even going to say the man's name whoever wrote this piece at the College Fix his whole career is being toppled over because now you know that there's more than one Bach out there <laughs> so now so that's the hole that you try to punch and what and 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 the point he's making talk to me Scott because maybe I'm stretching. As someone who has worked in this field for many years, if you say the name Bach, which Bach are people talking about? JS. Okay, thank you. We know that yeah, there's a CPE. I, right. We know that there is a JS, you know, we uh, a JC rather. We we know that there are different ones. So, you know, for for me, I think it's good to go through articles like this and really tear it apart and and uh and try to find nuance and those sorts of things. But as as soon as I read that, I was like, okay, so this person just hating. This person is hurt. This is mad. So since you know every damn thing, tell me which Bach wrote this. And I'll see y'all on the other side in the second movement. See what I mean? Come on, you guys, get out of here. Come on, take your instruments and beat it. Let's go, come on, that's right. That's better. So we're not going to name this Bach because this writer knows everything, right? Mm. But but I will ask you, do you, do you have... You know, special sorts of I don't know how do how do you approach ex, uh, uh, exposing this Bach to audiences because there are many uh, uh, listeners I'm sure who would hear the name Bach even if you you know include those identifying uh-huh. initials before mm-hmm. and you know think oh I'm about to listen to some organ music or something and and they hear this so do you let it be a surprise do you warn the people how do you approach it or how would you? like I said I just put it out there as is <laughs> hey look. Uh, now, next, we're hearing from the the 21st century Bach. <laughs> okay, well, there's your hint, a 21st century Bach, mm. and we're here in the second movement where Scott and I are going to share some music that we've been spending some time with this week. I'm going to get us started. I, I know that I shared a little Ella Fitzgerald in the intro this week, uh, but the, the tune of hers that I've really been meditating over, especially as I've been trying to heal here physically, is Ella Fitzgerald's rendition of Summertime. Okay. Before y'all get started, yes, I know who wrote it, (laughs) and I know what I've said about that composer Mm. in the past. I've been on a journey of really reconsidering George Gershwin, and while I think that there are some conversations that we still need to have about the spaces that he could fill back in his day, even as a Jewish composer that Black composers could not fill um, whether or not he was ripping off black people and making money, you know, we, we can continue all of that conversation. But at the end of the day, this is someone who brought black artistry to a space that it did not previously exist. I think we have to seriously delineate between the fact of bringing something to light and bringing something to light in certain spaces because black people did not need Gershwin to bring this music to light. So we have to be careful not to say that. With that being said, Gershwin did expose this music to people who may not have heard it Mm -hmm. otherwise, at least not so quickly. And among, you know, his many famous compositions is Summertime. Ella Fitzgerald performs it in a way 
that has just reminded me of being in the South in summertime. The the tempo of this rendition is just so humid. It's so laid back. Maybe there's a little hint of stress in there, but mm. at the end of the day, it's easy and no one sings it quite like her. So here's a little bit of this summertime as performed by the one and only Ella Fitzgerald. Fish are jumping And the cotton is high I don't know. For me, I just think about sitting back on a porch and you're covered in sweat because it's 90 degrees in the shade and the human is the humidity is at 100 percent. But you're just sitting there and you're just relaxing. You're taking a break. You're not going through physical ailments, emotional ailments, at least not to the front. You're just existing mm-hmm. in this summertime. So beautifully performed by Ella Fitzgerald. Bar none, one of the best voices to ever a grace a recording w- without question but you said that you also heard her do how high the moon mm-hmm. yeah that was did, that, that was from the the intro right yeah. so did she take a quick tempo with that or did she lay it out more like what we just heard well no you you heard it the, the that scat tempo that was the tempo of the tune got it okay because i like it when it's i've i've heard her do it laid back as well so yeah yeah um I know a lot of people think that summertime should kind of move. I think in the in an operatic context, you mm-hmm. know, in context of Porgy and Best, it's a tune that probably should lean a little bit more forward, shouldn't be so lean back. But, you know, in this context, and especially with uh, Ella Fitzgerald singing it, so, so, so beautiful. The, the last thing I'll say before I pass it off to you, something that uh, I learned again from Caesar this past weekend, apparently in the commissioning of Porgy and Best, George Gershwin said, do not put this thing on stage unless it's black people playing these roles. Really? Good. And that's what took it so long to be performed at the Met in the first place. So just imagine, as much as we have to talk about Aida and these other Othello, these other characters, just imagine all the black faces we would be seeing on stages if if George Gershwin- I don't want to. (laughs) So shout out to George Gershwin, okay? And shout out to Ella Fitzgerald for giving us- one of the greatest performances that I think exist in the American classical canon. Take it away. What you got this week? Well, like I was talking about in the in the overture, I needed music this past week that was not triggering. And I came across a, a wonderful collaboration between the, uh, the British electronic music artist Floating Points, the late Pharaoh Sanders, uh, uh, saxophonist on the... Um, cosmic end Mm. of jazz maybe over there with sun ra perhaps or hassan roland kirk but they were along with the uh the london symphony orchestra the last album that pharaoh sanders released before he died was called promises and it's a multi-movement um space-ish cosmic-esque sort of uh composition that was working for me on a couple of different levels and i want to shout out 
Caesar in particular because he sent me a really nice note when Radar uh, passed, and he talked about how he was going to chant Radar on his travels, mm-hmm. on his journey, and that Radar would be back. And I really like that idea. And it also played into something that I read that was giving me some strength as I would listen to it. This is a quote from Henry Scott Holland. Death is nothing at all. It does not count. I have only slipped away into the next room. Nothing has happened. Everything remains exactly as it was. I am I, and you are you, and the old life that we lived so fondly together is untouched, unchanged. Why should I be out of mind because I'm out of sight? I am but waiting for you for an interval somewhere very near just around the corner and how we shall laugh at the trouble of parting when we meet again Something that resonated with me from what you read there is that ending, how we shall laugh at the trouble of parting when we meet again. Sure. You know, I I have very specific spiritual beliefs in my Nietzsche and Buddhism, but one thing, one of the many things that we stand solidly in is that life and death are temporary. Mm -hmm. Both, Mm -hmm. you can't have one thing forever and one thing short and to, that that's just not the way of the universe that that's not how nature works that's that's not how anything is so why would life and death be that way it would be very silly every monday when you're leaving here to go back home that i am boohooing and crying please don't <laughs> leave oh my god how silly would that be when i'm going to see you the next week if not maybe the next day mm-hmm. and i know that it's hard for a lot of people to contextualize death in that way. But I think that sure. that is something that can can really help us get through just really thinking about the fact that whether you realize it or not, you will meet again. If you want to say, you know, they already called me the Lion King, circle of life, you mm. know, whatever whatever you need to 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 help, you know, ease some of that pain. I think that can be a, a very positive thought. You will meet again. Death is just as temporary as life. And there was some real connection for me with that music in that it was, like I said, not triggering, but it was just the right background for me to swipe through some of those pictures and videos. And I got the sense of a pattern or of repetition throughout the, the work, but not of time or meter. So doesn't that suggest yeah. that things come back around, you just don't know how long it's going to be or what you might experience in in the interval and maybe it's not for you to know you know (laughs) even even that is a thing but again rest in power to radar i can't wait for radar and grover 
to come back as humans in their next lives. They're going to be friends, or maybe they'll be enemies. But and they will start a podcast. Yeah, either way, yeah, they're they're going to create some things. Wow, wow. Yeah. Well, we're going to uh, transition now into our third movement. This week's guest is Dr. Richard Desnor. There's so much that I could say about Richard. He first came onto my radar uh, in conjunction with the International Society for Black Musicians. Shout out to uh, Katie and Delaney over there, um, uh, always presenting and and uh, and and helping people think about things like music theory in a decolonized way. So he is an academic, has taught at a number of universities, including Howard University, a black thought leader and someone who I'm just always so grateful to engage in dialogue. So I'm extremely grateful that I'm able to share with you uh, one of our recent conversations because uh, the world that uh, Richard lives in, especially when it comes to music theory, uh, is often gospel. I wanted mm-hmm. to I wanted to transition uh, into this with the gospel tune, and I think that I must have shared this on Triloquy before, but it's a it's a classic. In any everybody black know this one, a, a tune by Marvin Sapp called "Never Would Have Made It." Now, we can get into the politics of Judeo Christian things and all of and all of that. You know where a lot of this music comes from, but at the end of the day, we all have that thing. Or we all have that person that we think about saying never would have made it without you. Mm. You know, even if sure. it's a spiritual practice, yes, a uh, a nap, anything <laughs> that you needed. Okay, that is what this song speaks to every time I hear. So here's a little bit of Marvin Sapp's "Never Would Have Made It" to lead us into my conversation with Doctor Richard Desnor. Hope y'all enjoy. Never could have made it without you. I would have lost it all But now I see How you were there for me And I can say Never would have made it Never could have made it Without you I would have lost it all But now I see how you were there for me and I can say I'm stronger. As far as uh, what academia stands for, I think it still will be needed. I think it was just going to change. And I think we're in this weird sort of like nebulous space where um, I think people are questioning it. You have not only do you have people like doing influencer stuff on YouTube and other things, but there's a lot of educational impacts of those things so you can always tell people half the stuff you learn in college at least half the things you can learn with a library card and youtube like there's Mm -hmm. a lot of tutorials out there um so i think in order for the college environment to remain relevant i think it's going to have to embrace a lot of those things i think it's going to have to embrace the technological side of it and not just say put a pdf on on the cloud i mean having students really, and professors, having them really embrace the future. But yeah, um, and the last part is that when you talk about the student loan thing, I advocate for students not taking out student loans. I would rather mm-hmm. them not be in school or go to a, a cheaper institution. Um, but yeah, I think all of those things play a role into students really thinking about it. We see it in the job market where people are standing up more for themselves. I'm hopeful that students do that more with college environment as well. So I want to pull on that thread of, you know, it's better to not go to X school 
if you have to take out student loans. For so many of us, you know, certainly for myself, a first generation college student, much less graduate, much less um, Western classical musician, you know, skills that I couldn't have gotten without that path. It seems like we would be just perpetuating uh, a cycle by encouraging students who don't come from a lot of money to not go down that path and, you know, not have an opportunity to experience what going to college, what taking music lessons, whatever can provide on the on the career front. I mean, do you see an, an alternative if, if there's a kid from a poor family who really wants to become a, a professional violin player? Mm-hmm. What 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 then, you know, still not, don't take out the loans or, or how would you advise them? That's a tricky question because we have to think about where we are as a people. Um, mm. We have to think about the fact that we don't really have the sense of like generational wealth and other things like that within our community. So let's say we do have that kid, you know, in the community that can play violin at a high level and they can go on to some Eastman or something, but they have to come out with $80,000 of debt. Um, I don't think that will happen at that particular school, but let's say that was the case as an example. Now you have this student that's saddled with debt that does not have the the financial backing um, of like a, a, a within the family or the community to be able to help them alleviate those things. So they come out, they're a musician, they're having eight thousand or eighty thousand dollars of debt, and it's like, what does that do for them in the future? So I don't want that sort of thing to be a stopgap measure in terms of their development. Like, mm-hmm. I, and I see that a lot of times with students, they will say, okay, I need to go to college. I need to take out this amount of money. And I think there's some amounts that are reasonable. But again, if you're coming out, I remember being at Howard and talking to a student and asking them, um, we were just talking about loans or something. I think at the time I might've had five, 6,000 out or something. And they told me it was only second year and they already had like $50,000 out in student loans. And I remember thinking how crazy that was at the time. And then you think about it now where, you know, I'm in my thirties, I'm 34 now. And I know people who have, you know, upwards of like six figures in debt for a music degree from different institutions. So yeah, it's a tricky thing to think about. But like I said, we have to think about the long term as well. We're going to have this generation of people that, We'll, like you said, perpetual cycle of either having students not going to college or having students go and not being able to find jobs. What's the point of getting a degree? And now you have to go and work, you know, at a coffee shop or some other job that's not being a musician. And you spent $80,000 to hone this craft. So I think it's something that we have to think more about as a, as a society, but especially within our communities, maybe it's something where we're able to, you know, pull the resources together to be able to send a few students off so they don't have to think about that or um, maybe help them out to offset some of the costs. But I'm I'm definitely not a fan of just, you know, pushing students into that arena. And then beyond money, some students just aren't ready to be in college. Sure. Um, psychologically, we I think we damage some students by forcing them into that environment. Um, they aren't ready, especially students that come from like the first generation. So it's not necessarily like all of them aren't ready, but um, they need a little bit more support when they come into these schools. And a lot of times they're just on their own. So I think it's something that like more holistically, we really need to think about what does it mean to send the student off to college at a young age? And when we talk about, uh, you know, really maintaining and uh, cultivating 
things in our community for for our people. From your perspective, I wonder what role HBCUs play in that. If HBCUs, you know, again, talking about student loans and the cost of education, if they are out of reach for most Black folk, it seems like they aren't doing, the HBCUs aren't doing their job, or maybe it's not their job to uh, reach down and to, uh, to, to cultivate and impact communities in that way. I, I wonder what your ideas are. I think HBCUs play a huge role in doing that. And I think they, I think a lot of them are doing it. I think when we normally think of like the, like the upper echelon of HBCUs, we think of the Howards and stuff like that. And that's of course going to cost a lot of money. I think the last time I looked at it, I taught there for two and a half years. I mean, you're talking about at least like 15, 16,000 a semester. But oh. then after that, you have the state schools that these students can go to. They, you have the Norfolks. You have most of the students that are going to go to these colleges. They can find cheaper institutions to go to. And let's be frank about it. If we're talking about getting a music degree, it's not going to be like, it's not like if you go to Howard versus Morehouse or Spelman or something like, at least at the moment, the difference isn't so vast. Like you're going from a community college and rural Tennessee to um, Curtis Institute. It's not mm-hmm. like that. So if you're, if the way I look at it with the role of HBCUs, I think they have, again, a responsibility. There's, it's not only on them, um, but I think for a lot of students, if they were looking for that route, they want to go to an HBCU. I think they certainly have the the power to do that. If they're qualified to get into college, they, I, I would say that's definitely a viable option, but um yeah as when i when i look at it compared to like the like the pwis and stuff like that at least with our communities uh in the hbcus i think there's a lot of work that needs to be done and not necessarily on the within the departments i think a lot of times we don't support the arts enough um and that it shows when we have these institutions that like we've been doing the jazz consortium um uh, sort of project and looking at the number of HBCUs, I think it's just over a hundred mm-hmm. and how many of them don't have jazz programs. And these are historically black colleges that don't have jazz programs in them, but they might have music programs. So that's already an issue right there. And that's stuff that we have to look inward to see how we can remedy those things so we can attract students. And that goes back also into the first question about what does college look like? What does academia look like in the future? Because it seems that a lot of times at HBCUs, we are we are adapting like models from predominantly white institutions. Right. So when they change, it takes us a long time to change. It's like when you go to Africa and you see somebody wearing a shirt from the 90s. It's like we get stuff very, very late. So when it's, it's no reason that a student going to a music, uh, uh, a, a music program in HBCU that they aren't doing things that are more current, that there aren't contemporary methods in music education, that there aren't contemporary methods in music history, musicology. There's no reason for that. They should be learning all these things. But again, that's something we have to do as an institution um, and as a community to make this stuff more relevant. 
Yep. And not only did you teach at Howard, I understand that you are a Howard grad. You got your uh, bachelor's yeah, from Howard. So mm-hmm. moving from, you know, and, and I'm, I'm drawing on what you said about there not being a, a huge uh, difference between various HBCUs as it relates specifically to music programs. So mm-hmm. when you left Howard to go to Eastman, was there a sense of catch up? And, and, and what way did Howard prepare you or not prepare you for you know, one of the upper echelon music schools. Yeah. So that's an interesting journey. So I would say I was very fortunate to already have the drive and the desire to pursue music theory. Hmm. Um, And I was already basically good at it. Um, Of course, I'm not good at everything. There are things that I have to work on. Um, Writing was something that I wasn't the best at. Um, But I left uh, when I was at Howard. Let me say when I was at Howard, um, I took theory classes, did well in them. And theory, when you major in that, that's a different sort of monster. It's not just like you go to grad school and there are more Roman numerals. You have to right. really be able to think <laughs> a little bit more broadly about like what the, the scope of music theory is. So I had to actually do extra work while I was at Howard. Um, hmm. Meaning like I would come in and work with the theory professors, uh, have them work with me on writing. How do you format? How do you write uh, about p- particular pieces? What does it mean to write uh, for a journal article, um, a book, chapter, stuff like that? And they work with me. I mean, my like the end of my junior year and my senior year, I would come up, stay late at night. They would stay there with me working on things, um, taught me how to use Sibelius and different formatting systems. And I basically did that. Um, I had to just do extra work that didn't count towards my degree. Um, And then I took three years. I taught in the public school system in D.C. And I said, "Okay, let me actually try this, because I think there was um, I can't lie, like there was some self-doubt there. Mm -hmm. And I just applied on a whim. And then I got into Penn State and I was able to get, you know, a lot of those skills developed even further. But I think about a lot of students that I know, like grad students who go off, uh, phenomenal musicians who go off and do performance degrees um, at these uh, big schools like a Eastman or Indiana or Manhattan School of Music or something mm-hmm. like that. And a lot of times, and just being on the teacher side of things, when I see like black students come into grad programs, they're often in the remedial courses. And I think that goes into like where we put our uh, efforts and where what do we value as music schools, um, like within like the history and theory side of things, um, the academic part of it, because it's like we're quick to do the performance part, but really building up robust uh, citizenism music on the academic side of things. I think that's something that we could certainly do better. But yeah, when I went when I went to Penn State, when I went to Eastman, it. I did not feel like I had to do a lot of catch up. I felt challenged, especially when I got to Eastman, but I didn't feel like I didn't have the tools in order to be successful. Um, yeah. But I know a lot of students, not because of intelligence, but just because a lot of us come from programs in high school and grade school that don't have um, the like the, that don't give you really like the theory chops. Right. So even now I'm teaching at uh, Michigan State and I can see that like within the schools, I can tell what students didn't have uh, music ed programs um, to be able to give them those tools. So, yeah, it's not surprising when I'm when I was a student at Howard that a lot of people didn't fare well with music theory. I think across the board, culturally, a lot of people don't do that well with theory w- when coming in. But 
is especially problematic for us because it's more reflective of the music education programs that they are in prior to being in the collegiate environment. It's interesting that you use that word tools because, you know, I was lucky enough, you know, my high school had two levels of theory, I, you know, so by the time I made it to undergrad, you know, all of the Roman numeral analysis and oral theory and stuff that was just very easy for me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was easy for me to apply that to that leg of my journey career as a bassoonist. I just, you know, if we played a, if uh, the orchestra played a Mozart symphony, for example, I just understood the harmonic role of my part at all mm -hmm. times because of that foundational training. At the end of the day, my love for music theory was rooted in it as being a tool, but mm -hmm. you have just focused yourself squarely on that tool, at least it seems. I mean, what is it about music theory that uh, keeps your interest, keeps keeps your fascination? I look at, I look at music theory as like I always tell people that I'm performing analysis, that when mm -hmm. I am going through a piece of music, it's not just I'm putting, you know, a PowerPoint up or a few Roman numerals. I'm actively thinking about this when I'm going through the piece. I'm looking at it from the role of not just a theorist, but how does this stuff sound? How can I convey this to an audience? And I try to tell that to my students when they're analyzing the piece and they see a, a, a half cancel, they see a motive repeated or they see that motive kind of inverted or something. How does that change your perception of it as a performer? How do you communicate that to an audience? Because as a uh, as a performer, you're doing that. So while I might not be in the middle of an orchestra or in the, in the midst of some big band program, I still try to uh, imagine like the the music, uh, the analysis is being alive. It's a living document, mm. um, and that's something that really helps me. I would say that theory. And I say this a lot, like theory became meaningful to me when I started looking at it outside of classical music, hmm. because I could sit there and do everything. Because a lot of what you're talking about, when you analyze and you look at Roman numerals and you're able to just like see a lot of the idiomatic things that happen in classical music, when you perform it, then you can see, a, like you say, your role within that. You can tell what part of the core you're playing. You can tell how you're pushing this towards a credential function, whatever it is. Um, and that's well and good and i think that really helps for uh for people to really understand that but when i started looking at things through like a neo soul lens the uh, gospel lens when i started to really connect traditions that was the thing that really made it like oh like theory is like really a robust sort of tool that i could use everywhere so when i'm playing progressions for the students i don't just set up the key you know one four five one i'll play like a little gospel turn or something and then i'll set up no matter what institution i'm teaching just to get students thinking like i teach slash notation freshman year like from hmm. like the first few weeks um they had their final exam had richard smallwood uh for analysis like i really try to get them to think a little bit more broadly so it's not just like a classroom activity it's it's something that like i said it's it's part of me it's not it's not just theory it's part of just like being a musician to me What's your response to the idea that uh, something colonial is being applied to neo-soul and gospel and, and these sorts of things? It seems like the, the very idea of this approach to analyzing music in itself comes from the outside. It's not a part of our culture and our history. Yeah. I'll start with this. You don't have to analyze music. 
you don't have to use Western theory. You don't have to. Everybody has a music theory. That's what I always say. Like when I talk to gospel musicians or I talk to R&B guitarists or something like that, and they tell me what they're doing, whether they learn through shapes, whether they learn by ear, whatever it is, you have a way of understanding music. Music theory, we learn Western colonial music theory. All it is is just a system that has been adapted and codified in a way that has been is is easily like disseminated. So mm-hmm. that's first and foremost. But when we think about it from the lens of, like you said, like colonialism, we can't deny the fact that black music sounds like it does partly because of colonialism. Colonialism gave us the tonal systems that we use in jazz. Two five ones, we weren't beating on drums in Africa playing two five ones. So there's a reason why, you know, the development of black music happened the way it did. You have a people that's ripped from their homeland. You have them forced to do things within uh, whatever slave colonies that they had. Um, they're learning um, hymns and things because they have a religion that's forced on them that they never had. So they're learning these things, even if it's not formally, they're learning what a hymn sounds like that. And the hymns are classically oriented. They're learning a lot of these tunes, a lot of these folk hymns, everything like that. So when they are uh, they're adapting these things like the chitlins, basically of music, they're mm. like putting these pieces together and developing their own art forms. Is it's undeniable that you know uh, Western classical idioms are going to seep its way into the music. So when someone is analyzing a piece of music that uses tertian-based structures, meaning it's just built in thirds, they're yeah. using tonic dominant relationships because a lot of music i don't care what type of music it is tonic dominant relationships reign supreme even if it's not a half cadence like mm. a lot of these turns if i were to really break it down on a chart or something you would see a lot of these relationships there so i don't i don't shy away from using some of it what i would advise people to do is to not try to fit like the square peg in the triangle hole like some stuff is not going to work so if you look at it through the lens of well, most like this works with Mozart. And I found five one here. Why can't I find five one in Jill Scott? Because it doesn't work. But is she using a major seven chord? Cool. Is she using a triad? Cool. So we can use some of the theory. Just don't sit there and try to use all of it. It's not going to work. Yeah, I, I find it really fascinating the way that you can connect uh, theory. You can use theory to uh, connect students to contemporary music and music that you know speaks to us and our experience. I mm-hmm. wonder how your approach to music theory. Um, impacts the way that you uh, teach students music history. So, you know, when we're when we were learning again back in my high school days of theory, when we were just learning the baby steps of one four five one, it mm-hmm. was uh, you know uh, European chorales and Bach motets and stuff that you know really was the the basis of that, which you know forced us to learn about who these people were, who was Bach and all of that sort of stuff. So, I, so I wonder what the relationship is between your renewed approach or your unique approach and how that's applied to history not just contemporary music yeah that's an interesting question so what i try to do is i try to get students to learn like uh, i taught a tonal music course this semester and they told me the title when i got hired and they said it was tonal literature and analysis and immediately you think tonal literature you think sheet music go get the dover scores mm-hmm. and i would say i had everything mapped out and i was just like wait a minute could i have some black composer i had harry t burley and others but i said what about music that's not written down it's still tonal this literature doesn't mean for me it doesn't mean it has to be written down and so i went through the course like through a historical lens, like I showed them how we, I started basically with like 
broke classical and I showed them like some formal things, but how form is uh, really like articulated through harmonic procedures. And then after that, we moved through and I started to show them how we get, you know, from like, like a two part form to some type of like sentence structure, par a parallel period. And then we get the um, sonata form and all this stuff like that. We get these ternary form structures. And then we look at it and then we say, okay, we had this ABA form in the sonata, like exposition development recap. Well, you have the same thing that's happening in popular music in the late uh, 1800s, early 1900s. And you see jazz tunes now, you have a head, you have a solo that works out the ideas, you have the head come back, that's an ABA form. And I start to show them that and I try to look at it, you know, at least from this approach and sometimes in the past, through like theory through a historical lens. Like when I show them a progression that happens in a Bach piece and I can show them when it happens in gospel, like how those things are linked, like a plagal cadence is gonna sound much different in Brahms versus, you know, Kirk Franklin. Mm -hmm. But it's not like they're uh, so completely divorced. It's not like Kirk Franklin went and listened to the Brahms thing. It's part of, again, the shared tradition. So I try to look at it as, like, how did this develop into this? Like, it's unique, it's idiomatic in its own right, but how did we get to this version of it in a contemporary sense versus what happened before and how those uh, traditions align? How does it serve uh, Black communities to mm -hmm. integrate this sort of uh, approach, these conversations, this music, into music school training and, 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 and academia and, and all of those things? Considering, you know, as we were talking about a little bit earlier, many of us just aren't going to get there for financial reasons. We aren't going to be in the classrooms. We aren't going to be in the institutions. How does, for, from you, from your view, how does uh, teaching, you know, because you haven't just taught at Howard, of course. Mm -hmm. So, how does teaching a, a, a classroom full of white kids how to mm -hmm. view gospel music through this music theory lens serve the communities ultimately, or does it? It depends on how you approach it. So. I look at it from the standpoint of, uh, of course, first and foremost, I'm a theorist. I look at it first and foremost that I'm presenting this uh, or I'm exposing them to this sort of music. So a lot of times we do it, we just listen to it. Mm. We try to listen for the groove, like what sticks out to us, like what doesn't, how is this different? We just talk about it. So a lot of what they did uh, or what I've done with students at PWIs is it isn't so much, okay, you have to get this, uh, they have to get some things right, but a lot of it is more exploratory. And I think at least because I'm able to do this in this sort of institution, my ultimate goal has always been to be able to do this in historically black college. I mean, I'm a professional though. I have to be able to, I don't want to just say make a living. I have to make sure like everything is going right. So that doesn't mean that I ruled that out. But what I foresee is at least if this starts or if I'm able to do this and others are able to do this sort of thing at these sorts of institutions, we can at least better prepare people to do this in other places. So one of the things that does frustrate me, and I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of kind of betraying that oath, is like when we have people like in my positions that go off into like an Eastman or somewhere and then they can go and teach a lot of us don't go into the HBCUs. And I can say there's reason for that. Um, as a theorist, I need like the sort of financial support, the time support and stuff like that. And oftentimes like I was in DC teaching five courses or sometimes four courses a semester. And it's like, you have a lot of that. So you don't really have time to 
um, build your craft outside the classroom, your research methods, all this stuff, trying to come up with new courses. You don't really have time for that. But my my hope is that what it's able to do is to bring uh, bring more attention, more light to this conversation around it. Um, and it doesn't even have to be theory. It can just be performative. If it's a class that students take um, where maybe it is a theory class, but it's something where like model composition. I know one professor, I think Braxton Shelley, I heard that he was doing um, some like a gospel uh, history of theory course at Harvard or Yale. I think mm-hmm. it was at Harvard before he went to Yale. And students were like composing pieces like that, composing gospel tunes and stuff. And I, you know, I've tried that with students like, hey, make up a neo soul progression or something. And they'll do it and I'll play it in class. I'll put like a backbeat on the radio and then just do that stuff. So, yeah, I see it as hopefully something that is is something that we can share with other places, regardless of uh, demographics. Either at HBCUs or at PWIs, have you felt yourself in a sort of a silo when it comes to again your approach or has uh have there been uh, uh collaborative sorts of things you've been able to engage through this you know unique uh, uh approach to music theory yeah i would say people at least from what i've been able to see over the last uh few years is that people have been very supportive of those efforts uh especially because you know all the stuff that happened a couple of years ago protests and um, there was like a big jolt under the theory world when there was a guy, Philip Yule, out of oh, yeah. um, <laughs> New York. And he, you yep. know, he, he wrote that. I don't want to call it screed. I think it was very well written. It was something that needed to be written. Um, so, yeah, there's there's been a lot of push for more diversity. I just I I hate to use that word because a lot of times it just means like bring in a black composer, put the ragtime in the in the worksheet once or twice or something like that. So I would say that there has been a lot more talks about increasing the uh, types of uh, the increase the level at which we approach different types of music um and not seeing it as you know not rigorous or not rigorous enough compared to like a beethoven score or a Mahler symphony or something like that um with within my own school like they're very open to it they're like very encouraging of it they're trying different things themselves and i would say like at least for myself, like I've been invited to uh, talk to different schools um, to give presentations, whether it was I did one at Reed College. I did one with some students at Duke. Um, uh, I've been asked to do it. I'm doing a Radcliffe Institute at Harvard next year, um, like a think tank for music theory um, and trying to rethink theory in the 21st century. Um I'm also doing a, a, a similar sort of like session uh, workshop with students at UNC Greensboro um, mm-hmm. next spring. So, yeah, people are out there and they're, they're, they're hungry for like the knowledge of how to do this thing. And one thing that I really appreciate is that they're going off and they're asking people like myself, not because like I'm the greatest theorist ever, but just asking for uh, different uh, pieces of feedback and not just saying, all right, I'm going to listen to this on the radio and put it in there because. I think culturally, sometimes you can get yourself in hot water. You say, okay, we're going to look at Negro spirituals today and you don't really have the context and you haven't really done the work historically to really understand what those things mean. So you mm-hmm. can't just decide how I'm going to put Deep River in this. But what does it mean? Why does this song exist? Um, why does this version exist? Whether it's the Harry T. Burley or the Coleridge Taylor, like why? Where where did these pieces come from? So I'm glad like they are reaching out 
um, not only in terms of like bringing in examples but bringing in scholars who can better articulate what's going on in these examples. I don't think we can talk about, at least I can't talk about the support and the hunger for this renewed approach that you're talking about without acknowledging the pushback. You know, we all read what uh, Esperanza Spalding uh, went through, uh, you mm-hmm. know, a little while ago. I'm also thinking about Nicole Hannah-Jones and, you know, her yes. uh, professional shift. I wonder uh, mm-hmm. what your reaction is to stories like those. We can we can talk about this hunger and the thirst that people are having, but it's mm-hmm. also clear that there are powers that be that really want the tradition to remain in place. Yeah, and that's unfortunate. And I think that goes back to what I was saying before about people not looking at it as serious music or rigorous music. And we still have people that have this mindset that classical music um, is the serious music, the music that is written down that somebody took five years to write a symphony. Like that is the thing. So when someone makes a beat, um, whether it's London on a track or somebody, like they make a beat within five minutes or create a, a freestyle or something within five minutes is somehow not serious as this other type of music. Um, you still have people doing that. So I, we have to acknowledge the pushback. I think a lot of that comes from like the old guard. Um, mm. And I think the less influence that we see them having over programs as they get filtered out, you'll start to see hopefully um, more people embrace this sort of thing. I think even with them still in place, their voices or at least their influence has been at least like blunted a little bit. Um, So you have people still able to come in and say, yeah, we want to be able to do this with the curriculum. We want to shift things around. And I see this happening at big schools like, like Harvard, I think they took out the theory requirement or they shifted it around so students didn't have to take like the the traditional core. Like they had uh, ability to pick um, from different types of musics and different genres to take courses in. So, um, yeah, that's definitely going to be pushed back. It is frustrating. Um, you sometimes it, it's it's not even like just microaggression. Somebody says something like I remember having a professor who I most of, for the most part respect. Um assume that I just played jazz. This is before anyone, before I even knew what I was doing. Um, yeah. He was just, it was a regular conversation, like water cooler type of thing in the hallway. And he started mentioning a jazz piece and it was just like, oh yeah, you know this, right? And then kept going. And we never had a conversation about me doing gospel. This is early in my career. So mm-hmm. you're going to deal with that sometimes. Sometimes you're going to be in spaces where, like if I walk in the space and I look the way I do, um, something especially if I got like a, a a beanie on or something like that, and I walk into a space and I'm wearing like the like regular clothes you see in a black neighborhood, I don't look like a theorist. I don't look like what people would expect to be like a tenure track, you know, theory person in a big school. But I think being able that's part of the reason I keep doing it is to try to like shift those misconceptions. So when someone sees dreads or they see an afro. They see somebody in these spaces is doing that, at least in a visual cultural sense, it at least lets people know like, hey, people like this exist and people like this are able to do it. But I think the pushback is going to be there for some time. I mean, we're like 150 years or something past the Emancipation Proclamation. We still Mm -hmm. deal with certain things. So I'm not expecting overnight work with the music theory community, but. Yeah, I think little steps that's been happening while it's not enough, um, I think it's a step in the right direction. So, yeah, I'm hopeful for what's going to happen despite pushback. 
when you talk about not looking like a theorist, you've reminded me of uh, 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 the point that Langston Hughes was making in one of his essays. I think it was specifically tied to uh, literature, but his idea was he had a student that just wanted to be known as a great writer and not necessarily a great black writer. Langston Hughes' point was that when people think of great writers, they're typically thinking about white people. So are you actually aspiring to whiteness? With that said, I wonder if you um, are okay with the idea of being a great black theorist, or do you are you on more of the fence of well, just consider me a theorist? I mean, I would rather it be just like a theorist, but that means that people's perception of the field is going to have to change. If your uh, perception mm -hmm. of being music theorist is someone that only does classical music that is exuding like whiteness all the time, then I don't want that label. But I would say. I'm more to the point, I would not want that label to be ascribed to anybody that's doing music theory. I would like for it to just be like, if you say I'm a musician or I went to college for music, I don't want people to only assume that you can do classical music. I also take great pride in just hearing the word black in front of anything that I do because <laughs> I take great, great pride in being black. Um, so when I, if someone says he's a black music theorist, there's two sides to that because on one hand, some it, it kind of, separates you out is like when someone says someone is a female michael jordan or something like that right you are taking away somewhat from their uh thing because you're comparing them to something else or just that qualifier kind of separates you out so if you say oh this person is a music theorist but you say he's a black music theorist it depends on what you mean by that like i said i because just instinctively when i hear black anything um as far as like a descriptor of a, of a cultural label I'm very prideful of that, but like I said, it, it also comes with the fact that people are separating you out from like the group by saying that. It doesn't have to be that, but a lot of times it it does mean that. Like if someone says, um, yeah, he's a black music theorist um, instead of just music theorist, does that change like what you think that I do? Or is it just like mm -hmm. I'm a black dude doing classical music or am I a black person doing all types of music or yeah it, uh, am i less qualified because i'm a black music theorist so i'm i'm yeah it's it's i'm always on the fence with that sort of thing yeah point taken point taken how can folks uh learn more about you or or keep up with where you're teaching what you're teaching how can they do that honestly right now you'd have to just like google it um i don't <laughs> use social media at all uh you will never find that. i've never had that so yeah, uh, you can find my email um, if I am doing anything like within the community or something more than likely, like my friends will post it. So my best friend, Ariel Davis or, you know, Katie and Delaney at the Classic Week Black podcast, they might post something that I'm doing or I've accomplished. But yeah, my email and just look out for like an, a, a calendar invite or something from an event that I'm doing. Got to have your ear to the ground is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So hopefully I'll have a website at some point. But right now is, you know, pretty, pretty close to the vest when it comes to like a lot of uh, information out there. Are you team movable dough or fixed dough? Before I ask you my final question, I, I forgot. I need to know. I need to know who I'm talking to here. <laughs> yeah. So I learned movable dough growing up and throughout uh, the first part of grad school. So. It wasn't until I got to Eastman. Actually, I got in, got the PhD program, and the summer before I started that the the PhD studies, they sent me an email, um, Bill Marvin saying, "Hey, you gotta do uh, fixed dough," and it was just not even fixed dough with like 
chromatic solfege. Just like any C is dope. So C sharp, C natural. So I was like, wait a minute, what? So I sat for that whole summer and I did that. And it's weird now. You talking about up to that point, 28 years of doing move though. And then I learned it over the summer, how to do fixed though. Fixed though feels more natural to me now. Wow. Like I'm not, I don't push for one over the other, but it, I guess because I drilled it so hard that summer that I can do, I can do both, but it's like, I got to like, it's, it's kind of like switching languages uh, and being in that environment. So yeah, maybe I'm like a Spanglish version of, uh, <laughs> I'm yeah. I'm strongly movable dough, but you know we can. I get it. it. <laughs> I, 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 if someone is good at it, I I will say like if I had the choice, I would just not use solfege at all. Like I would rather sure. just be able to hear the stuff, and that's what I do. But when I teach it, I think whichever one works, like use it. Okay. Well, my my final question. So you know there are many black folks, you know, like myself, who came up through those more traditional pipelines of learning, you know, music history, music theory, you know, orchestral music, all of those things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we want to, I would love to teach one day at a, at a Howard or a, or a Morehouse or, or one of these places, but it can sometimes be difficult to identify what you can offer to students with a renewed way of thinking, even with a decolonized way of thinking. Maybe I am not interested in training the next crop of bassoonists who dedicate their lives to Rachmaninoff and Schubert and, and Beethoven. Mm -hmm. You know, though, though, that, that's just the sort of thought path I find myself in. I wonder, you know, just to close, what are your thoughts on what people who have been trained more uh, traditionally, what can they offer to an HBCU setting is there a place for the black professional who has squarely been trained through that more colonial lens i definitely think is there i definitely think there's a, a space for that it can't be the main focus if that's all you know and i always tell people i tell my students now like i tell my dma pianist go sit in on a jazz session go learn some new things so um I think if they are open to learning themselves, I think they definitely have a place because one of the things that they can really teach is technique. They don't have to teach necessarily like this is the only thing that you can do. Um, I always look at it like a lot of that, a lot of what we do on the classical side or the so-called classical side of the music learning fundamentals and things like that. On a very basic level, I think it's very important that they have those skills, the foundation skills, just to be able to produce sound to be able to uh to be able to play music at some type of level and then we can branch off and do that learning fundamentals is not a classical thing i think it's just there i always compare it to i found a picture i couldn't remember why i saved it but i remember it now when we think of like you go into a kindergarten classroom or something grace when you see the penmanship stuff on the board it shows you how to write the letter r and all your abc mm -hmm. All of us learn that with the two lines and the dotted line in the middle, we all learn that. But we look at how we write now, it's all different. We come up with our approaches. So I look at it that way. If we can have some type of foundation, I think that's where, if anything, the people who are classically trained, they can be uh, in that kind of role. And of course, students can play the classical works. They, I would encourage students to do that. I think what we just need to keep in mind is that we don't need to necessarily throw out that part of the curriculum we just need to decentralize it so when students see it they see it as an option they see it as a fruit to pick from a bowl and it's not the only thing that they can do so yeah when a student i would i would welcome a student like a pianist saying hey i saw this rock or i heard this rock piece i really want to do it but if they're thinking 
this is the highest form of art in terms of making music, that's when I have a problem with it because at the end of the day, art is art. So if they see that or they see Richard Smallwood's Greatest Thy Faithfulness rendition, as a pianist, I would like for them to be able to say, hey, I can pull different things from each one of these equally and, you know, glean some type of like understanding of music from each one, even though it's not going to be the same thing. So, yeah. Great is thy faithfulness to get me out of uh, our com- the conversation that I had with Dr. Richard Desnor. You know, one of the points that Richard was making there at the end is that there is as much learning, music theory, history, all of all of that in that piece of music as there is in any and every Bach cantata, whichever Bach that we're talking about, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> you know, any Rachmaninoff concerto. And it's not about writing off those pieces, but it's doing the equitable work and recognizing these works, like this uh, uh, arrangement of Great Is Thy Faithfulness, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. ones that have been ignored for systemic reasons, not just for happenstance, A, and B, what we can really learn about these pieces of music and how we can tie that in with our own culture, our own history and, and by our I mean American you know all, no matter sure, what color sure. you are so um, th- that is really what uh, Richard is doing an incredible job of uh, bringing to the front and I was just so honored to be able to engage him in conversation I want to go back Scott to uh, season one oh boy where you and I uh, visited Pilgrim Baptist I remember amen here in here in St Paul I wonder if as you think back to that experience, you know, hearing that gospel music live in the moment and not just the music, but live reaction to the music, the testimony, the things that people share. What do you what do you most remember? What is most highlighted from that day in your mind? The organ player. Yeah. The way that he led things through. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of call and response. And basically, I would say uh, the music that you get there versus what you might hear on a recording or over the television, whatever. Um, it's it's like the difference between uh, fresh bread and two-day-old. Listen, listen. Uh, and I want to underscore, you said the way the organ player brought it through. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. So this Black History Month, as much as we are all repeating, uh, what's the man's name? Martin Luther King Jr., mm-hmm. Malcolm X, Florence Price, Margaret Bonds, all these people, George Walker, I challenge everyone, if gospel music is not something that you have spent much time with, give it a try. Dive in. I am nobody's Christian. I have made that perfectly clear uh, here on on Triloquy, you know, time in and, and, and time out. You don't need to have that belief to really understand and experience the magic that is this music, especially if you think about where it's coming from. Again, we transition into the interview with um, uh, Never Would Have Made It. If that thing for you is 
cannabis. I mean, goodness gracious, you have something to be grateful for. There are times when I never could have made it without a blunt in my hand. Testify. You know, times where I never could have made it if Dell weren't here next to me. Anyway, reach into that literature and see how you can incorporate it into your daily listening, into your weekly listening, and maybe in, even into your teaching or what you share with audiences if you have that uh, sort of uh, privilege. So again, huge shout out to Dr. Richard Desnor. Another shout out to Adrian Dunn, who's really putting this style of music in an orchestral context for broader audiences. Really incredible things to discover this Black History Month and throughout the year. Uh, but we're going to go ahead and get into the triloquy movement this week. You know, um, among the things that, you know, we never could have made it <laughs> without is a lot of broadcast, you know, especially, you know, I've, I've experienced times in my life where I was in more solitude than not. So having my favorite mm. show to go to, you know, was one of those things. Anyway, we have uh, a show that's been hitting HBO lately called The Last of Us. And it's inspired a, a conversation between Scott and I that I thought would be good to uh, bring to triloquy. So here's a little bit of the theme music uh, from the show Last of Us. The uh, composer here is Gustavo Santialalo, uh, and I think he's also performing here on guitar. A little bit of this uh, to get us into the final movement this week. of us video game when it came out over a decade ago Dell has played the game at this point you aren't familiar with the video game but no. it seems like you are pretty engaged about the television adaptation engrossed by it yeah what is it about it that's that's really grabbing you uh the use of music has been really strong and provocative i thought um some of the camera angles and just the way it's shot are uh like looking at museum paintings going by just mm. just really interesting that you're not things that you're not counting on but everybody is humanized some way the the bad guys are humanized the the secondary characters are humanized i mean it it, it goes so far beyond what i think any video game could capture but sure sure it's, it's been wonderful some of the best acting i've seen well the you know the reaction to the video game was as such that they were inspired to make a show. I right. think that speaks to not only the concept, but the writing. There's a lot of overlap. And I've heard you speak a lot about uh, how the acting is is really superb in the show. Uh, so in a recent episode, Nick Offerman, and I'm saying this for me because I don't know any actor's name, the man who played- um, Oh, Ron Swanson. Ron Swanson, right. On Parks and Rec. On Parks and Rec. He, he has a, a, a cameo in the show where he plays a gay man. And it's uh, a very, you know, touching love story over the course of 60 minutes, you know, from, you know, two men meeting each other to, you know, passing through that barrier of fear into romance and to how that just turns into lifelong love and, and even, you know, dying together, not to mm -hmm. give uh, too much of a spoiler. One of the things that I know uh, was was very impactful for people is seeing this depiction of same-sex love, uh, characters who are very 
so-called masculine, very, you know, just men's, a man's man, as, mm -hmm. as, as many people would say, and how homosexuality even exists in there. We're going to bring this to the arts. Stay with me. <laughs> but, 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 but before we go too far, I wonder, Scott, if you can speak to how the so-called straight acting or non-flamboyant depiction of gays can be a good thing for some people who need to see that sort of thing. Because... Uh, we know that people like Bill in The Last of Us exist, sure, but they have also been taught for their entire life that it's wrong, mm. that it isn't masculine, that it isn't uh, proper or, or accepted. And the way that Nick built that character, you can see years of of uncertainty mm. and 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 being told that the, what you really want is bad. And that even affected his relationship with women. Sure. So to be in a situation where what, what you want so badly is sitting right there and you don't know how. And it was music that did it. He started playing that Linda Ronstadt mm -hmm. piano piece really fast. And Nick essentially pushed him aside and said, no, no, this is how you're going to love me. Mm -hmm. this, this is how you treat me. And, and it was a beautiful moment. So... As someone, as a gay who has, you know, been around a block or two, I'll, I will admit, okay. I am well aware of gay men like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's all I'm going to say on that. But maybe there aren't. Maybe there are people who don't think of there being gay men like that. So who is this type of media for? Who was that story for, in, in, in your view? Wow. I would, I'd like to say that it's for everybody because it was intimacy. It was love. I mean, to the point of like, uh, I even felt like, I, sh should, I even, should I be allowed to see this level of intimacy? You know, not like it was awkward or uncomfortable, but it was breathtaking. The, and, and the respect that they paid to those two characters in, in how tender it was. Mm -hmm. So I really think that it was for... I'm going to get it. I thought it was for homophobic men. And that is my exact point because the very same. So, but before I go, go into my spiel, <laughs> I appreciated it as well. I, I thought it was very beautiful. It was a, a great show of uh, visibility for mm -hmm. a community that it does, isn't typically thought of in those contexts. We could have just as easily had two very flamboyant gay men playing those roles and giving visibility to that existing in a post-apocalyptic world, you know, and how the, the so-called feminine man can also survive and, and be self-sufficient and all of those things. What that. do you think would be the difference in the impact? Because people are going to have a problem no matter, no matter what. But what do you think would have been the difference in the impact if we saw that two very gay gay men, so to speak, as opposed to the more masculine depiction of same-sex love that was platformed there. To, uh, I could see, uh, let's say somebody like my middle brother. He would probably be more apt to watch the, the, the more stereotype reinforcing sort of character mm -hmm. because he can, he can poke fun at that. He, right. can, he can shade that right. or couch it as other. 
But when you got a guy that looks and acts like him, mm. that all of a sudden you go, now, wait a minute, you are attracted to me. That is going to blow their doors off. Right. Because they're not looking for that. Right. So let's tie this over to the arts, to programming, to so-called classical music. Composers like William Grant Still, or let's even go and say folks like Chevalier de Saint-Georges or um, Lusitano, who we've been recently talking about, mm-hmm. uh, Samuel Coleridge Taylor, that can be that thing for audiences who are used to a certain aesthetic, a certain approach to the idea of classical music. They hear that. They feel seen because their affinities and their perspectives are being reinforced. And then learning that a Black person wrote that music could blow the doors off for those people. Do you think that's a fair sort of comparison? I see, yeah, I see, what you're, I see where you're coming, coming from. So essentially what we're saying is um, the, the music by a Black composer that is in the, the more... Uh, common aesthetic mm-hmm. or the or the aesthetic that, more aligned with that whiteness that we were talking about earlier then it's easier to go oh okay so i listen to music by black people or maybe be surprised right because okay, okay. because in the same okay. way that again i'm i'm uh, i i try to make sure that my, my comparisons and, and metaphors and things make sense just in the same case that ron swanson being gay blew the doors off for some people, but at the same time was not so jarring as to see, you know, you know, the most flamboyant things or, or even gay sex, because that's not the point of, of the story. You know, that's not what we were there to talk about. And in the same way that that is the way William Grant Still and Florence Price has been the way. I approximate, I compare the idea of two flamboyant men on the show to jumping right to jazz or jumping right to gospel or even the spiritual as a way to engage the intersection of blackness, American history, and classical music. Hmm. I think that it's very good that we have depictions like that on that show. I think, of course, it's phenomenal that we have music by the Chevalier and by uh, Samuel Coleridge Taylor, William Grant Still, all of these composers who fit into that stereotype of classical music. We need that. I think we also need to think about the fact that there is more room to go. What will the ecosystem look like when we're actually sharing the Ella Fitzgerald tracks on classical radio Hmm. and actually, you know, really expanding and, and broadening what we use when we say that phrase, classical music, the things that we're referring to, that's the direction that we have to go in. So I think we see a lot of this from our programming, even unfortunately from many of classical music's black leaders being, you know, just, and I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, but being just black enough or being, you know, just over the line enough to still be comfortable. I think we all have to think about how we can, in our individual lives, expand ourselves, live more true to ourselves and allow ourselves to exist in those spaces. I think that's the direction that we have to go in. And when I saw that episode and and dialogued about it with you, that's what I was thinking about. So to sum that up, (laughs) depictions of masculine men in same-sex relationships is very important for some audiences and for some people who need that as the bridge. But at the end of the day, it is a bridge to understanding that it's also okay to be flamboyantly gay 
and to be trans and to dress a certain kind of way and all of those things. So if they need the masculine depiction as that bridge, so be it, but we can't treat it as the destination. I think about the the concept of classical music in the same way. This music that we're beginning to see performed more and more on orchestral stages by these historical black composers is important. We need that and we need to remember them. We also need to keep in mind that it is a bridge. We need to get to the affirmation of more music as classical, making sure that it's performed on our stages and keeping this thing as equitable as we can moving forward and highlighting living composers and perspectives of, of today. That's, that's my, um, that's my message for this week, my little uh, uh, comparison that I'll draw. So hopefully y'all y'all take something from that. Really appreciate all of you listening as as always. Thanks again, Scott, for being back this week. Thank and, you. Grateful for all of you. Very yeah. grateful. And we will see you next week. Until then. 